Hey, serious privacy enthusiasts, ready to ace your AI data privacy game? Oh, you bet, Kate. Dive into the world of TrustSark's Nemity Research, your go-to for staying on top of regulatory developments in AI and privacy. Seriously, Nimity Research maintains a massive privacy and regulatory database featuring expert guidance and analysis from legal and privacy pros. So save time on privacy research, cut your compliance timeline, and reduce costs with Nimity Research. Get your regulatory research and insight at your fingertips with a free trial. So get ahead in privacy compliance and start that free trial today. Go to trustark.com slash nimity dash free dash trial. You're listening to Serious Privacy by Trustark. Please welcome our hosts, Paul Breitbarth and Kay Royal. It's the end of another month, and so it is time to look back at what happened in recent weeks. Although, to be honest, I'm not even sure we will be able to discuss anything that happened longer ago than the 48 hours before our recording. Just these few hours brought us updates on the state of play of privacy legislation in Florida and Washington, disagreeing European courts on the legality of telecommunications metadata retention, and a massive new draft AI law from the European Commission. Apart from that, we have a lot of lessons learned from the draft UK adequacy decision, its assessment by the European Data Protection Board, updated legislation in Japan, a likely breakthrough on the Chinese data protection law, and standstill in India. So stay tuned to find out what we did and did not discuss. And don't worry, we'll post links to the other updates in our show notes. My name is Paul Breitbart. And I'm Kay Royal, and welcome to Serious Privacy. So, Paul, I'm going to tell you that as I'm flipping through my book of unexpected questions, some of them I just have to throw out the door because it's asking things like, what was the last flight you were on? Or something like that. This the last one is- flight that I was on was <laughs> probably from Stockholm back to Amsterdam in January of 2020. Yeah, I think I think mine was San Francisco. It might have been Toronto, but I think it was San Francisco in uh, February of, of 2020. But this is a good one, but I'm not sure I want the answer. Is If you had to spend five years in prison, what would you finally have the chance to do? Um, yeah, we're going to throw that one out. <laughs> either read a lot of books or write some books. <laughs> I, I took it more as a what crime would you commit that you had to spend five years in prison? Oh, okay. So that shows the difference in the way you and I think. <laughs> you think about being productive. I think of, oh, crap, what got me there? <laughs> five years that must be some fraud issue or something like that yes darn sure not anybody i'd like to kill because that'd be more than five years so yeah yeah (laughs) especially all righty so what's the real question gonna be this week i'm gonna leave it right there at those questions that that's good enough the last flight we were on we're good (laughs) okay So yes, we cannot really say that April 2021 was a quiet month in privacy, can we? No, no, no. Where do you want to start? Let's start with Europe. Okay, then I'll just fill the hour. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) We'll start with Europe with some highlights, and then I'll move it over to the US, because we had the unanimous Supreme Court decision come out on the Federal Trade Commission. So start us off with Europe. Okay, then maybe start with the conversation that's talk of the town 
And that would be artificial intelligence, because when this European Commission took office, what, 15 months ago, they announced that within 100 days they would come with an AI proposal. Well, it's a little over those 100 days, but the AI proposal has been published earlier this week, and it is a bit of a difficult novel to read, if I'm honest. It's it's not a very straightforward proposal, it's very lengthy, it counts over 100 pages, it's pretty... That's lengthy dense. even for the traditional, you know. It is. Yeah. It is pretty lengthy. It is pretty dense in in its formulations and it's certainly not technology neutral when uh, when looking at all the requirements and I'm not completely sure yet how it all will relate to GDPR. So the European Commission seems to make, well let me start with the definition of AI because they define AI as software with human-defined objectives and generating outputs such as content, predictions, recommendations, decisions that influence the environment they interact with. But it's all such as, like in the the GDPR, the definition of a processing operation, they just give a list of examples instead of coming straight to the point, this is what AI is and this is what AI isn't. Maybe because they can't? Maybe, maybe, but that makes it a lot more difficult overall, I would say. Then there are some kind of AI systems that are prohibited, such as systems that can cause physical or physio- or psychological harm to people themselves or to others, as well as social scoring with unjust or negative effects in other situations. I think that's inspired by the Chinese social scoring system, where you allegedly would not be allowed to travel if you don't visit your parents regularly, for example. And also some remote biometric identification by law enforcement would be prohibited. But interestingly, despite calls in the European Parliament, there is no overall ban on facial recognition included so far. That is is interesting, because there's a lot of controversy with that worldwide, and I just had the privilege of supervising an honors thesis for a student at Arizona State University, and she wrote her thesis on facial recognition technology. And it's interesting in looking at she was looking for, and her particular perspective was in how to limit it for law enforcement agencies. Mm -hmm. And so she's particularly looking at how do you limit the government from using facial recognition technology, given all the evidence of it's not good, it's biased, it doesn't doesn't seem to work. And as she was evaluating the laws and we were looking at them globally, even the strong facial recognition technology laws that are out there or biometric laws that are out there tend to limit commercial activity and not government, especially here in the U.S., of course. Well, I mean, I guess there will be some restrictions because a lot of AI is identified as high risk and looking at all the various categories, probably regular facial recognition would be identified as high risk, which means you need to do a whole lot of administrative requirements before you can qualify to use it. But I would have expected some form of ban on facial recognition, to be honest, given the controversy and also given the lead that many U.S. states and cities have taken on banning facial recognition. So I'm, I'm, I'm not completely sure there, but high risk AI, for example, would include credit scoring law enforcement activities, migration activities, so all the things that you that you would expect. So law enforcement activities wouldn't roll in facial recognition technology? Well, they would and and facial well, biometric identification remotely by law enforcement 
would be prohibited. But for example, okay. close by or commercial use could also be uh, part of the prohibition. And well, it, it's it's still pretty vague there. In any case, if you want to do AI and it is not prohibited, you need a risk management system in place. And further, there are further additional administrative requirements, including a notification obligation. If you thought we had get, gotten rid of those with the GDPR, well, they're back. So just keeping your own register is is not sufficient. Apparently, sensitive data can be used in certain circumstances. And if you don't comply with the AI regulation, there can be fines of up to 30 million euros or 6% of global turnover. I guess this is some negotiating room to get to the 20 million euro and 4% that we have in the GDPR. And then if you look further, there will be oversight by independent authorities. So that we know from the GDPR, but they will be new authorities. So they won't be the data protection authorities, but they will be specific AI authorities with uh, above them a new European AI board. So the EAIB chaired by the European Commission. Interesting. Oh, yes. This is also great for all your acronyms. I love it. The EAIB. The EAIB. That kind of starts sounding like MIB, Men in Black. Yes, exactly. So it's a bit of a mixed bag, I would say. And I should shout out to Gabriela Zanfir, who, as always, has done an amazing quick job in analyzing the whole proposal. So a lot of what I'm telling you is also thanks to her analysis. And we'll post the analysis in the uh, in the show notes. I had to chuckle a little this morning when I received the GDPR Hub newsletter, which is, by the way, a great newsletter to subscribe to where Jennifer Baker, a tech journalist here in Europe, also wrote a summary. And she says on the various categories of AI distinguished in the, pro- in the proposal the following. Some of them are unacceptable. In other words, no way, Jose, this is not allowed in the EU. Some <laughs> of them are high risk. So that means in EU lingo, we have a long list of questions and hoops for you to jump through. Then there are those with limited risks. I guess the user can always opt out, but it's not a th- it's not a big deal. Or the ones with minimal risk, even your doc would outthink this one. So it is, I guess, a nice summary of the various categories of risk identified. And this will start a long legislative process. It will need to be agreed by the member states, by the European Parliament. And I think that will be quite the fight as we've seen for example, for the GDPR and are still seeing for e-privacy. And we know that for the GDPR, there were 3,999 amendments tabled in the European Parliament. 3,999. Do you want to wager a bet whether it will be more or less for AI, given all the industry lobbying that we will see? But AI still is a very controversial topic worldwide, because I don't, period, we're not going to get away from using AI. No, I don't think so. And to be honest, not all AI is bad. I mean, we are using AI in in a lot of our software at TrustArc as well. But that doesn't mean that it has detrimental effects on people. And I think that is where we where we need to be careful. I'm just still curious whether we actually need a separate legislative proposal with separate oversight and and right all the the hoops that you have to jump through and whether the data protection legislation maybe would not just be enough or whether with some small amendments to the GDPR, we might have the same results. Right, exactly. It sounds as much as Europe has moved to one 
overarching data protection law that we're still going to have so many little one-offs, it's not going to be as easy to navigate as perhaps we imagined it would be under the GDPR. I mean, we still don't have an e-privacy legislation. Nope, nope. And also that is not in sight yet. The negotiations negotiations will start shortly, is the common understanding. But if you look at the positions of the member states and the European Parliament, they are far and wide between. Which is interesting, because if I recall, some of the first proposed regulation amendments actually contradicted the GDPR. And the e-privacy was supposed to go into effect alongside the GDPR, Mm -hmm. but the way it was drafted, it was not able to do so. So it makes me wonder if this is what we're going to see, rather than challenging the GDPR is trying to find different, not trying to find, but enacting different regulation on smaller portions of what the GDPR should have jurisdiction over. Yeah, possibly. I saw some comments that indeed claim, well, this AI proposal will be another Lex Specialis to the GDPR, it will also be a Lex Ulterior, so it is enacted later in time, so it would take precedence over GDPR. I'm not completely sure. I know that it hasn't been very warmly welcomed by the privacy community, this proposal, also because of its complexity, and we'll see what what will happen in the coming months and whether it will get any traction. Yeah, that will be interesting. What else you got going on over there? Well, there is this tiny little decision that's pending called UK Adequacy. Or actually Ah, two decisions called UK Adequacy, because it's one for the commercial and government sector and one for law enforcement. So the European Commission has said that the UK should be declared adequate because they have implemented GDPR as is, and, and for the rest they don't see any major problems. And the European Data Protection Board has said that maybe they do have some slight concerns here and there that the European Commission is invited to take another look at. And that Which is, I thought was a very mild opinion coming out of the board. Well, it is a very mild way of saying that the commission needs to redo their homework. And apparently the initial wording was stronger, if we are to believe political, Ooh. but the a commission more or less put some pressure on the other members of the European Data Protection Board. Just should remember, the, the, the Commission is a member of the board as well, but they apparently made it very clear that they would not be happy with an opinion that would be too vocal on the UK shortcomings, because if the UK cannot be adequate, then who can? I was going to say, yeah, that kind of brings in doubt a lot of the other member states, or not other anymore, but the other member states. True, and at the same time, I mean, it's a pretty political decision for something that should be analyzed from a legal perspective. But we all know that data protection is pretty political at times. Oh, absolutely. Just briefly on some of the the, the challenges, because they are interesting to, to take a look at. Also in the, the broader transfers discussion, the board has some criticism on limitations in, in UK law on individual rights in immigration procedures, and whereas such exceptions and exemptions would be allowed under Article 23 of the GDPR, the restriction provision. It is only allowed if the limitations still respect the essence of the fundamental rights to privacy and data protection. This is one of those things that the Commission is invited to review once more. The same for onward transfers. So transfers 
that have gone from the UK from the EU to the UK and then to another third country. Also there the board has concerns and asks the commission to properly monitor for example if the UK were to declare the United States adequate where the EU has not and that is their competence what would happen then and would that have consequences and of course there are lots of concerns on government surveillance both to the extent of government surveillance with also the question whether or not oversight is sufficiently effective. And if I look at especially what the European Data Protection Board has written there, it seems very clear to me that this is not an assessment that each and every company is just able to do as no. is currently expected under the recommendations post-REMS 2. Also I mean, frankly, European- most companies can't manage the full range of data protection assessments that they need to be taking on their own business processes, Mm -hmm. their own vendors, perhaps their own data transfers, regardless of where that might be, much less having to assess the laws of the countries where the data is going to to determine if those laws are sufficiently protective. Because as you and I have stated in conversations before, what's written between the four corners of a page does not necessarily tell you what actually happens in process or in true reality. And here it also doesn't help that the European Commission has not made public their underlying analyses of the UK legislation and practices. They have been handed to the European Data Protection Board, but they are not public. So companies also cannot learn from those assessments what kind of things to look out for. But my main criticism on the opinion of the European Data Protection Board on the UK adequacy is actually that the board raises a lot of questions to the European Commission. Take another look at this. We invite you to reassess that. We are concerned that. But they draw no conclusions. Of course, if you read in between the lines, you can see the conclusions. But if the European Data Protection Board already doesn't draw the conclusions, how can they expect from a private company wishing to transfer personal data, that they will draw those those conclusions. And as part of a black and white, no conditionality, no ifs and buts data transfer assessment, it, it, it seems to be measuring with two measures, we would say in, in Dutch. I'm not sure whether that is a good expression in English, but it, it, it doesn't seem to be a fair approach to international transfers. And maybe I'm wrong, but at some point, and maybe companies have already done it, I have a feeling that some are just going to throw up their hands and say, we can't comply. We we just simply can't. We can't keep track of all of this. And they're going to make a business decision to either comply or not comply. And that's a little scary because we've already mm-hmm. seen companies out there that have taken the business risk to not necessarily comply with some of the international data protection laws that are out there, whether it's South Africa or Israel or Hong Kong or whatever. They've just said, you know, we're going to roll the dice and take a chance. They they tend to not do so with the GDPR, but just this is getting more complex. Yeah, I agree. And then I'm not saying it's not it's not worth it. She's saying it's getting more complex, which this is one of the few times I'll say something. Thank God for companies like us that actually put the work into it to help companies figure out what they need to do. But I mean, how do you expect most people that don't understand data protection law to be able to pull all of this into context? I agree. And all the more reason why, at the very least, we should have a risk-based approach to international data transfers. But we'll talk more about that in the future. 
at some point. Yes. The final thing from Europe that I would like to raise with you today is the ongoing discussion on my favorite topic, which is data retention. And as I told before, this is the very first privacy topic I've been working on since the 1st of November 2005, which is almost 16 years ago. And it's still ongoing. And yesterday and today saw two more court cases decided on these issues. Our listeners may recall that on the 1st of October last year, the Court of Justice of the European Union ruled in the Privacy International and Quadrature du Net cases. And the Quadrature du Net case is a case against France, Belgium and the UK from a French NGO on the national implementation of data retention laws. So the the retention of telecommunications metadata to fight terrorism and serious crime. And the Court of Justice at the time said, this this is not allowed. You cannot do unlimited retention of these data. And if you do, then at least you need strict conditions on what can be retained for which purposes, and even stricter conditions on what can be used for which purposes. And the more sensitive the information is, for example, if you include location data, then you will need to limit the duration of the monitoring, you will limit the use of the monitoring to those cases that are very serious. These cases were all based on so-called prejudicial questions to the Court of Justice, which means that the cases in the original court still had to be decided. And that's what happened now. So yesterday, the French Conseil d'État, the Council of State, decided in the French case and said, you know what, everything is fine. We just don't agree with the government's request to set aside the the verdict of the Court of Justice of the European Union because they have exceeded their competences. They have not. This is what they are entitled to do. And this is union law, and that goes above the French constitution. But looking at the criteria that the court has set, looking at the French legislation and looking at the existing threats to national security in France, we do believe that the telecommunications data can be retained at this point. It needs to be reassessed in the light of the existing threat levels on a a regular basis by investigative judges. And also the data cannot be used for anything but national security. So it cannot be used for serious crime. But the legislation is to the largest extent upheld in France. That was yesterday. Today, the Belgian court, uh, the constitutional court in Belgium said, oh no, this is absolutely wrong what the government has done. So uh, we throw out all the implementing legislation, which is more or less identical to the one in France. If the government wants data retention, then it will need to draft new legislation, bearing in mind the criteria set by the Court of Justice of the European Union. So much for uniformity of law here in Europe, the consistent interpretation of the case law of the Court of Justice. I think I prefer to go with the Belgian interpretation, to be honest. (laughs) And even though also in Belgium, the Constitutional Court says, yes, there are indeed reasons for national security where some of these data might be used, the legislation as it is currently formulated by the government just is not specific enough. So bearing in mind what the court has said, we need to throw it out. Whereas the French has said, oh no, this is specific enough and we live in dangerous times, so... Yeah, be careful there, but we will we'll uphold the legislation. Okay. Utterly fascinating. It is fascinating, and I'm curious to see when this will end up in court again. Probably later this year or next year. That there will I was going to say, sooner rather than later, right? Oh yeah, this will be 
haunting me until my dying day, I guess. <laughs> you are definitely retaining that interest. <laughs> Absolutely. So okay. that's, that's Europe for now. So what's new on your side of the Atlantic? Well, I was just looking up to see if there had been any movement in the Canada laws, but I don't believe that we've seen any significant movements on that side. But here in the U.S., of course, as you know, most of the states are, well, all of the states now are in legislative season, but they're coming to an end. And we have seen some very promising bills come up. Because the end of April is a great time for summer recess? I guess so. You know, we, we think about it that way. And I guess a lot of them are actually doing a lot of activities remotely. But, you know, whereas Canada is locking down very, very strictly again, the United States is getting rid of mask mandates and isolations and everything. However, we have millions upon millions upon million vaccines rolling out. So I guess you can balance the Not jealous. Not way. jealous at all. Not jealous at all. There we go. So April the 14th, we actually gave an update about this on a webinar. If anybody's interested, please feel free to go watch that. But when we presented it, the Oklahoma bill had died that morning or the day before. So we had hopes for the Oklahoma. Oklahoma Oklahoma is gone. No more Oklahoma. We still have New York out there, which Mm -hmm. is the New York Privacy Act. There is potential that one can see some movement. I'm not going to hold my breath on it. We have Washington, which is still there, but the legislation, I think their legislative session ends April the 25th. So not really sure that Washington's going to go anywhere. So no third time lucky, but maybe the fourth time lucky. It's Maybe, and I guess there's still ability for it too, but I just looked to see what its status was, and I, do, I don't know if Washington can pull it off. But there we go. So we have Washington, which we will continue to watch Washington. And I think one of the big things with Washington that has brought it to a halt is the consumer right of action. Can we sue yes or no? Yeah, again, one of the biggest, biggest issues here in the United States is the private right of action, as well as whether or not there would be federal preemption. So, but of course, the states can't do anything about that part. We also have Florida, which Florida is promising. Florida, not unanimously, but overwhelmingly passed the House, was it yesterday? Mm Mm-hmm. Might have been yesterday, I think it was. Unanimously passed, I keep saying unanimously because I've got the FTC decision of the Supreme Court (laughs) on top of my head, but overwhelmingly passed. And so now it's in the Senate. I believe their legislative season is over April 30th. So it's in the Senate. It's in the Senate Rules Committee. Typically, if you see how many committees a bill is assigned to, we'll tell you whether or not there's a good chance of it making through. And it's only assigned to one committee that I can see, the Senate Rules Committee, which is usually very efficient in their review and execution of bills. And so there's a possibility Florida can make it. And Florida has never been very high on our watch list, right? It really hasn't. And Oklahoma wasn't either, but it came up and surprised us. And the other one that surprised us was the Alaska proposed privacy law, which I have not looked to see where it is sitting right now. So I might look up and see where Florida is sitting before we're done talking. 
But we also weren't expecting Alaska to come up. I mean, that was nowhere on anyone's radar. And I believe that has been adopted already or it's also still pending. It's it's still pending. I need to look up and see where it is right now and to see if it's got a hope of passing. I'll try to do that before we're finished talking. So that will be interesting as well. But I am excited about the possibility of Florida. But I still think, based on mine and your ongoing bet, I'm not sure we're going to get a whole lot of new state consumer privacy laws this season. I I don't know why. Well, we still have the fall, right? I mean, the sessions restart sometime after the summer. and. Our bet was sometime for Christmas, so there that is still is true. time. There is true. And more than likely, and I have, I have to say this, more than likely the, the Congress people are feeling the same exhaustion that every other human being is feeling right now after over a year of living under different circumstances. And that's affecting how... All of us are approaching things in our normal lives because there are normal things that are still going on. People are having babies. There, you know, their kids are going to school in some way People or are another. People are getting drunk, and people are getting drunk. Football is happening. I mean, there's some semblance of normal life going on, but we all know it's it's not quite normal yet. And so, I have a feeling that that's probably impacting a lot of what we're seeing legislatively as as well. Am I sounding really cynical today? Mm, or maybe just tired? a little, but not a lot. <laughs> maybe not a lot more than usual. <laughs> right. I mean, I I really want it to happen, but you know, in reality, privacy is not top of a lot of people's mind. And it's not the huge legislative priority that, you know, those of us that love it would love to see it to be. And I think that might also be impacting where we're going. So we still have some others out there. There are, I guess, about 16. I haven't looked up to see if they're still alive now, but there are privacy bills that are proposed in Alabama, Arizona, Colorado, Connecticut, Illinois, Massachusetts. Minnesota, New Jersey, Texas, and West Virginia as well. And I haven't looked up to see the status of all of them, but those are some that we were watching and we were tracking. So those, I I, I don't know that any of those have pinged my radar as going to come to fruition, and a couple of them may have already died by now, but we should know in the next week or two. Interesting. Let's see if... We indeed do get some companies that will actually adopt the legislation. There we go. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So if we then turn to this very exciting United States Supreme Court case that came out, the opinion came out this morning. It is on AMG. Which is Thursday morning, the 22nd of April. Oh, yes. Let's make sure people understand we're talking Thursday, the 22nd, as we're recording. And it's on AMG Capital Management, LLC versus the Federal Trade Commission. It is not a privacy case. Let's make that very clear. It is not a privacy case. Not a privacy case. Not, yes, repeat it with me. Not a privacy case. Sorry. Okay, everybody listening, just, you know, laugh with me. However, it was a decision on the extent of the FTC's enforcement capability. And one of the things that we have talked about before, and and this also came up when we were talking about Canada's proposed bill is that the agency that enforces it didn't have the ability to level penalties and fines until they had actually put the entity under oversight and the entity violated the 
provisions it was under, the injunctions, the settlements, whatever it is that it's under, then it would be able to level penalties or fines in general. And Canada was under the same thing, and their proposed law actually gives their enforcement agency the ability to levy penalties and fines. And so that is one of the things that the FTC has also been laboring under. But in this case, they had actually levied a huge penalty. It was supposed to reimburse people that it issued. It was a payday loan case, and the penalty was in the billions. And they actually came through, and the decision came out this morning, and it was unanimous that the FTC cannot do so, that the authority that it was enacted under and gave its ability, says that they do not have the ability to do that. And that will flow its way through every single enforcement case that the FTC has. So what does that mean, for example, for the the $5 billion fine that the FTC imposed on Facebook? So the, uh, the Facebook fine that was imposed by FTC was in a settlement decision. And right. so, so that's that a different is, situation. That's a different situation. But would they now need to retroactively look at all their earlier cases and reimburse the fines, or is a court decision then needed for each and every one of them? I believe that if there was a situation that the FTC did put this up front, and I'd have to go look, and our listeners may actually know more than I do about it, but I think that would mean that anyone that had been under it would probably have to petition for view. But as when I get through reading the Supreme Court case, it may actually give some more insight into it as well, the decision. Okay, so this is to be continued, maybe in a blog on on the Trustark website. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, give me time to read. I know typically when we come on and something came out the same day for you, you've had time (laughs) to read and assess it and everything. I woke up to, whoop, here's a decision. (laughs) <laughs> so I, I need to go okay. read I'm that cheating. And- I, I'm six out. Um, no, I'm nine hours ahead of you. So I'm, I'm cheating a little bit here. But you are, okay. but it's okay. Um, watching what the FTC does. I mean, that's our enforcement agency here. And Dale Bean's law, the federal privacy law that she has proposed is centered around the FTC getting more enforcement authority, actually proposing hiring 500 people, And, you know, having very, very broadened powers. And so this might actually give more impetus to her bill to get that passed because it might actually disappoint a lot of people that they were not able to bring this, uh, I think it was payday loans, to account for, for what they thought was there. And this is reminiscent over a previous case that we had had with the FTC with the lab company that, um, not, not over a penalty, but over their ability to enforce. And this was over the FTC, I believe, finding that they did not have um, appropriate security measures in place. And the argument was, but the FTC doesn't promulgate what those security measures have to be. Hmm. And then to come in and say they're not sufficient, how is that fair? And so eventually, I believe that the lab won their cases, but it put them out of business. And it is, it's interesting to see that it used to be that a lot of companies wouldn't fight. I mean, why, why fight the federal government penalizing you when, you know, it doesn't cost them in anything to keep you going for years and years, and it can put you out of business. Mm-hmm. And there have been more and more cases lately of entities actually fighting the enforcement action rather than coming to a settlement. 
And as some of these, this one ran to the Supreme Court to be able to come out and say this. So that's going to have a lot of not just trickle-down effect, but broad effect going across to say, okay, this may be what we do. It might encourage other companies to fight the proceedings. It might encourage other companies to change their practices. It might encourage the federal legislators to pass a bill to increase the FTC authority. So it's going to be interesting what the repercussions of this is going to be, even though it was not a privacy case. Interesting. To be continued in in either here in the podcast or elsewhere with a nice blog from Kate. There we go. I'll follow up with some of this. (laughs) While we wrap up, maybe just one thing to warn our listeners for, and that is that next week, during the session of April 26 to April 29 of the National People's Congress of the People's Republic of China, the Chinese personal information protection law may actually see the light. It was discussed at length during the opening session of the IAPP Global Privacy Summit online. We'll post the link to that conversation in the in the show notes as well. But there, Barbara Lee, who is head of corporate for the Rui Bai law firm, indicated that the Standing Committee of the People's Congress has put it on the agenda, so the proposed legislation could come through very quickly. The public consultation has been ongoing since last year, October. So that's already done and dusted. So we'll see what happens there. And in that same discussion, it also became apparent that India is not really making any progress, even though we had high hopes for the Indian legislation to be finalized around this this time as well. But it seems that the legislation is stuck in committee. Maybe they have been speaking too much to people from Washington State. There you go. And with that... We are at the end of another episode because this is all that we have time for today. Oh, trust me, there's probably a lot out there we could probably talk about because I want to bring this one up just in passing that the Brazilian Enforcement Agency is getting up and running and ready to to act. Oh, absolutely. They are. And it's a great team. So a shout out to the ANPD as well. So thank you for listening to yet another episode of Serious Privacy. If you like our series, please rate and review us in your podcast app and do tell your friends and colleagues about us. We always like more listeners. Also, thank you for your kind comments that we still receive via email and LinkedIn messages. It really excites us. It does. Should you have any questions or suggestions, and especially if you would like to be a guest, please reach out to us via Serious Privacy at TrustArc.com or via Twitter at, at Podcast Privacy. You'll find Kay on Twitter as Heart of Privacy and myself as EuropaLB. Until next week, when we continue with our academic paper series. Bye. Bye, y'all. That was Serious Privacy. Hey listeners, looking to navigate the realm of responsible AI data privacy governance? Well, look no further. Absolutely. TrustArc is paving the way, offering a complete approach to managing privacy risks in the world of AI. TrustArc allows organizations to confidently use AI with personal or sensitive data, moving forward efficiently and cost-effectively. And here's the kicker. Protect your company and data with TrustArc's privacy-driven compliance software. Because they're 
deep automation streamlines data privacy governance, cutting your time to compliance with automated data mapping, risk assessments, and regulatory reporting. TrustArk's enhancements go way beyond that, helping organizations understand AI better and align cross-functionally on data governance, privacy, and security. Plus, they provide guidance on privacy governance for AI and how to mitigate risks using frameworks like NIST AI, OECD AI, and the Nemesis Privacy Management Accountability Framework. If you're aiming for compliance excellence, check out Privacy Central, seriously one of my best parts. It uses automation and privacy expertise to understand your requirements, build and manage your privacy program with ease. Oh, I agree. Privacy Central is your go-to to measure your progress toward responsible AI data compliance. Stay ahead with TrustArk's Privacy Central. Visit TrustArk.com now. Ask me a Paul if you have any questions.